The following is offered by Discerning Hearts, a 501c3 nonprofit Catholic apostolate dedicated to spiritual formation through the use of new media. To download this selection, or to browse hundreds of other programs, or to contribute to our mission with a charitable donation which is fully tax-deductible, visit our website at discerninghearts.com. Today, Chris, we are joined by Dr. Regis Martin. Dr. Martin is a professor of theology at the Franciscan University of Steubenville and the author of several books on spirituality and theology. Some of his other works include The Last Things and Garlands of Grace. Those books also published by Ignatius Press, as is the one we're going to be talking about today called Suffering of Love, Christ's Descent into the Hell of Human Hopelessness. And Dr. Martin, good morning, and welcome to the program. We're delighted to have you with us. I'm, I'm delighted and uh, honored to be here. Dr. Martin, is a, uh, really the honor is, is ours to have you with us because I have enjoyed your work for so long. Oh, uh, thank you. Uh, your writings on Flannery O'Connor first caught my eye, and ever since then I've just been a, a big, dare I say, fan of your work. Well, that, that's very kind of you. <laughs> The, the thing about the suffering of love, when I first opened it, I thought, boy, this is going to be a heavy subject, Christ's descent into the hell of human hopelessness. And yet, with the way that you write, it was a book that I could not put down because it almost reads like prose, because you tell a story that so many of us are familiar with, but yet I don't know if we've ever experienced quite this way. Well, you're really very flattering. I'm, I'm still trying to get people to pick it up. <laughs> well, hopefully we can help do that. Right. Uh, it's it's a difficult theme, uh, particularly, I, I think, for those of us in the West, because uh, in the Roman liturgy, uh, we, we sort of accompany Christ mm-hmm. as he moves from, from Friday to Sunday, and we tend to forget uh, what happens in between. Uh, we're, we're riveted, uh, certainly, on the ignominy of the cross. That's the big event of Good Friday. And then we look toward the glory of Easter Sunday. Mm-hmm. But the episode in between, uh, we, we tend to marginalize, uh, almost, as, almost as if it were, were an embarrassment. You know, we have this great haste to get to the empty tomb. But what becomes of uh, the mystery of Holy Saturday that falls in between? Uh, and, and that's really what the book tries to uh, unearth. Uh, and uh, I, I'm glad that uh, I've succeeded, at least with one reader. Oh, I, what's wonderful about it is that I think, especially the way that you write about it, Holy Saturday is probably an experience that we have every day. And I think that's what the world struggles with. And we have moments of the Easter where there's this bathing of grace, and we try to live it out for 50 days. But yet right, yeah. uh, we forget that Holy Saturdays will happen to us. It's difficult, I, I think, when you're still in the body, in a fallen world, to sustain that pitch of, of pure of Easter joy. I mean, 50 days, that's a long stretch of mm-hmm. being rhapsodic. Uh, and you're right, there is something peculiarly uh, human uh, about uh, the experience of, of Holy Saturday, the encounter with the absence of God. Well, the perceived, apparent absence, because he's never left. He's never taken flight from the world. He's here to stay. Uh, but uh, we symbolize that, that absence, uh, as it were, by emptying out all the, uh, the tabernacles. Uh, you know, Jesus is dead. God is gone. And we enter into the silence and the shame of his absence. And, and in a way, that characterizes 
the modern and postmodern experience of God, the, the presence of his absence, and, and we, we lament that. We, we sense the emptiness and the futility, and we wonder who is responsible for, for this landscape of, of unrelieved desolation. Mm-hmm. But of course, Christ entered into that. Uh, that's the point of, uh, of all the silence and shame of, of that day sandwiched between Friday and, and Sunday. I mean, that, it seems to me, is the deepest dimension that, that we need to uh, uh, face. And a lot of the saints have, have faced it in their lives. I, I think of St. Teresa of Avila, who experienced a kind of hellish thirst and loss and felt that it would go on forever. Mm-hmm. And uh, more recently, uh, Adrian von Speyer, a, a, a remarkable uh, Swiss-Austrian uh, mystic and, uh, and a physician who died, I think, in the late 1960s, the last 20 years of her life, every Good Friday at 3 p.m., uh, like, like a kind of lightning bolt, uh, would send her into a sort of mystic trance, and she would descend vicariously with Jesus into uh, the depths of, of hell and experience something of that abandonment, that, that uh, uh, God-forsakenness. And that that image is is difficult to uh, to describe uh, because it's interior. It's not externalized as uh, the passion is mm-hmm. on the cross. That's what most Western Christians uh, uh, are riveted upon, and and rightly so. But there is this interior dimension of of pain. You know, Jesus languishing uh, in a kind of passivity and and solitude, and seemingly cut off from others, and even from God, because that's what hell is. It's the place where God is absent. There's no light, there's no warmth, there's no love, there's no hope. It's the experience of sin Mm -hmm. in its purest state, what, what Revelations calls the second death. And Jesus enters into that out of a depth of incomprehensible love, and, and he does so out of obedience, uh, in search of the lost father, and of course, uh, in search of uh, lost humanity. Mm. So we, we can never say to God, look, you didn't understand my pain, you know, the sense of meaninglessness, the misery, the absurdity. I mean, God will say, hey, I was there, I felt that pain. My son uh, uh, chose willingly to descend uh, into that shame and silence, uh, and he redeemed it. That's, that, that's the important point, that it, it has been redeemed, transfigured by his grace. I think that's that, the message that we need to keep close, because I think you might be able to perceive this rise of an atheist type of thought, you know, as reflected maybe on book charts where a Richard Dawkins or a Sam Harris will write about the absence, or the worst, maybe that we do not need God or that there's a God delusion. That's right, and, and if there is a God, then he's made one bloody mess of, of the world uh, he, he fashioned, and, and why, should we, uh, why should we remain loyal to a God who presides over the death camps? Uh, I mean, that, that, you know, that's the question of theodicy. How do we vindicate God? How do we protect the absolute innocence of God, who doesn't traffic in evil, and yet the world is steeped in, in evil and suffering and injustice? Uh, 
that that has to be squared. That has to be uh, uh, faced, uh, and only in the dissent, it seems to me, can we reconcile that, uh, unpuzzle that problem of of pain and evil. I mean, when when people say, "Where was God? You know, what was He doing when so many of His people perished in in the death camps? Uh, when the Holocaust uh, fell upon?" The world and and it fell upon a Christian world. It it happened mm-hmm. in in Germany and and parts of Europe that had been baptized for centuries. What was God thinking? What was He doing? And it seems to me, at the deepest level, He was there. He was present. He entered into that sorrow and encompassed it within His own infinite pain and sorrow. And, and that alone is what enables that pain uh, to be redeemed. Dr. Martin, I had a a theology class probably 15 years ago on Judaism, and we were taught by this wonderful elderly rabbi. The class was composed primarily of Christians, mostly Catholics, and we asked about the Messiah. Well, aren't you waiting for the return of the Messiah? And he looked at us, and he was so quiet, and then he looked up and said, if he didn't come during the Holocaust, I don't think he's coming. And it was heartbreaking. I mean, all of us just, I mean, wow. I mean, we we stepped back, and that's the thing that I think that works so well for the suffering of love, because you really help to understand that he was there in that Holy Saturday moment with his people. Right. I I speak of a certain kinship in kenosis, that the self-emptying of God enters into the self-emptying of his people, that there's a solidarity, a shared suffering. That's what compassion means, Mm -hmm. that you accept and and embrace the pathos, the suffering of others. What what Eliot means by the image of the wounded surgeon who plies the steel that questions the distempered part. Beneath the bleeding hands, we feel the sharp compassion of the healer's uh, art, resolving the enigma of the fever chart. That's the kind of God I want, a God who is infinitely, intensely interested in my story, the brokenness of my life, who feels that pain. You know, the cries of of Christ are much wider uh, than we imagine. They include the cries of innocent children, brutalized uh, uh, families, scattered uh, villages, Christ somehow enters into all of that pain, that dislocation, and makes it his own, and burns it in the fire of his love. That, that's the ultimate consolation, I, I think, of, of our holy faith. Mm-hmm. And I think when, when you talk about the Holocaust and where is God in all of this, I mean, I think we see examples of that really self-emptying love that God finds rises up good people like Edith Stein and, and Maximilian Kolbe, you know, who really through, through this just emptied themselves out for everyone. Yeah, their example, as you probably know, forms the epilogue to the book. Mm-hmm. And, and, I mean, Edith Stein goes to Auschwitz, I go with my people, she identifies with the suffering of the Jewish race. She doesn't want to detach or dissociate herself from their pain. And so she goes up in smoke with her brothers and sisters, mysteriously uh, in, in the Lord. Uh, or Maximilian Kolbe, there is the most stunning example, the most, uh, 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 the most amazing substitution. You know, this guy coming forward and saying, look, I'm a Catholic priest, and I want to take this man's place. Mm-hmm. 
I don't know who he is, but he's got a family. Let me go down into that bunker. And there he is, languishing for almost two weeks uh, until they inject him with that fatal dose of of poison and, and send him straight to heaven. But in the meantime, it's a kind of hell. It's a dark night that he embraces out of this this inscrutable love for God and for uh, his neighbor. I mean, only Christ can account for a sacrifice like that. Mm. Well, and as you point out, John Paul said so clearly that Auschwitz really was the Golgotha of the modern world. Yeah, it it certainly is. And, And our task, I think, is to try to convey that to our Jewish brothers and sisters, whom the Pope uh, describes as our elder brothers and sisters. We're grafted onto the tree that Christ, that God planted. You know, Christianity is the fulfillment of a longing that the people of Israel have, have held close to their hearts for thousands of years. You know, he was the first Pope to enter a Jewish synagogue, you know, across the Tiber, the major temple, of the of the uh, diaspora uh, and announced himself as uh, your younger brother I'm here uh, and he struck that note of solidarity uh, even John uh, the 23rd uh, the blessed uh, uh, John uh, even he uh, did not venture into uh, the, uh, the temple he merely got out of his car and blessed them Mm-hmm. Uh, they went into the temple, but John Paul II crossed that Rubicon, and it was astonishing. There are no barriers. Jesus goes everywhere, and his vicar you know, can be no less uh, forthcoming. It is amazing when you look at what happened in the Holocaust, and of not only what happened to the Jews, but also of the religious that were killed, or those that were the most vulnerable, the ones with defects. That's right. And uh, the gypsies, the offcasts, the the simple ones. And when John Paul talks about a Golgotha for modern times, they were persecuted by isms that were so godless, whether it was Nazism, communism. Yes. Yeah, when when people try to assign the blame for the Holocaust uh, to Christians, uh, it's it is just inexplicable to me. This was these were lapsed Christians, apostates who betrayed their faith, betrayed their their broken brothers and sisters. Uh, uh, Stalin was a, a failed seminarian who hated the church. Hitler was an altar boy who felt only contempt and loathing for the church because it was so weak uh, and 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 unwilling to to loose these genocidal furies upon the world. I mean, there wasn't anything Christian that animated uh, the actions of, of these wicked men. They, they, were, in, they were somehow in thrall uh, with the devil, the dark side. And Christianity represents this light, this beacon of, of, of hope. It, it is, it is I, I think, important uh, not to uh, regard the Holocaust as a singular uh, event of human wickedness. It may be the most salient expression we have from the last century, but all kinds of people were caught up in 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 that Holocaust and consumed by by hatred. Uh, lots of Catholic priests and nuns and brothers were destroyed merely because they were Catholic and stood in the way of this tyranny. And, and they need to be memorialized uh, as well. I just think we can't 
fail to see that period of so blatant removal of God from the scene is over, yet in our own society we have that beginning to occur in ways that are very subtle. For example, even the innocents that are destroyed through embryonic stem cell research or through abortion, and it's don't we see what we're doing? I know, I know. St. Thomas has a a wonderful text. Uh, He says, every existence as such is good, that there is something uh, inherently precious about being, this intuition into being, that it is good to be. Uh, and, And God, as if to dramatize the point, becomes himself a human being, and then extends and prolongs his presence in, in, in sacrament. Uh, the cry, uh, the anthem of, of the modern age is, God is dead. Well, if he is dead, then man will shortly follow him into the grave. Mm. Because once you dethrone God, then it's open season on his image. You can defile uh, and profane that image with impunity. I think that was the insight of, of Dostoevsky's great novel, a Crime and Punishment. If God does not uh, exist, everything is permitted. There's no limit uh, to the beastliness and, and hideousness that men may inflict upon their brother. Well, the meaning has been taken out of everything. Nothing has meaning. The absurd. And, and that, in a way, is the meaning of Holy Saturday. Jesus enters into that absurdity. Uh, he, he accepts it, he, he allows it, uh, as it were, to nail him to this tree. I mean, life enters into death. And, and death is not just the cessation of, of my, my, my heart activity. I mean, death is really a kind of hell, because we were never intended by God to die. But because of sin, we must now face death. We're all condemned to die. And it means loneliness. It means, the, it means something dreadful, a violence done to man. It means the meaningless misery you know, of, of, of terminating a, a life that should go on forever. And Christ accepted that. He descended into that death. He accepted the terms that we had imposed. And by doing that, he redeemed it. Mm. You know, one of the great patristic sayings is, what God did not assume, God did not redeem. Well, he assumed the whole hellish character of man's life. And, and by doing that, he changed it. He conquered it. And uh, Dr. Martin, as, as you point out, in, in citing a number of saints, this is kind of, uh, I think, an important darkness that a lot of us need to go through. When you look at St. John of the Cross and, and his writing on, the, on the, the soul's dark time, a lot of these saints really wrestled with this, but when they emerged from this, uh, you know, the hope is that we really see a stronger and deeper fulfillment in our salvation with Christ, don't we? That, that's right. There, there's that, that ringing uh, affirmation from St. Paul, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is thy sting? Mm-hmm. And, and Christ removes that sting, but, but only after having submitted to it himself. He allows death to seemingly swallow him. Uh, and, you know, the Church insists upon the brutal realism of death, uh, all of its bitterness and, and disarray and bewilderment of pain. That's the true image of, of our age, and yet Christ takes that on. He assumes it, and thus he swallows up uh, 
death. I, that, that to me, is the kind of comfort that, that our age especially needs, that, that nothing human is alien to God. He has, he's walked the extra mile. He's blazed that trail through our bitterness. And so nobody, nobody uh, facing God on the other side can reproach him and say, you didn't understand my anguish. That's just not going to carry uh, the freight. That's the Paschal mystery. I mean, just that dying to our own sins. I mean, the Paschal mystery, isn't it, Dr. Martin? I mean, even for individuals and for nations. I mean, it, it grows and it blossoms, so you end up having through our, the refusal to die to our own sins, to have those little deaths. It's the great mystic exchange, which yeah. we celebrate each day in, in the Mass, when we repeat those words by the mystery of this water and wine, may we come to share in the divinity of Christ, who humbled himself to share in our humanity. God becomes man so that we in Christ might become God. Mm-hmm. The humanization of God, so that there might be a divinization of, of man. But we oftentimes lose sight of the price that God paid. Yeah, we, we have this lovely chapel on campus where students uh, uh, gravitate uh, uh, to the Blessed Sacrament 24-7. The adoration uh, goes on, and it's really edifying. And you sometimes ask, well, what does it cost these students uh, to make that sacrifice? And really, not very much uh, alongside the sacrifice God made uh, in order to break himself to become our bread. Uh, he went all the way to the cross, and the humiliation and pain of, of that, that cross and the descent that followed, unimaginable, incalculable pain and torment, which Christ bore out of this incomprehensible depth of, of, of love. That, that I, I think, those are precious memories that we need to keep uh, alive. I think we've lost a sense in some cases of the last things and of when we, we say in, in the Apostles' Creed that, you know, he descended into hell. We, we don't want to think about hell. I think that's why Holy Saturday, people don't know what to do with that. Yeah, no, they don't. In fact, yeah, they, we sort of, uh, I think, just sort of uh, move quickly uh, beyond that uh, event, stumble over it and, and quickly pass by mostly in silence, uh, and that's really a great pity. In, in fact, the temptation is to begin the Easter celebration even before uh, uh, Holy Saturday has, uh, has spent itself, and, and that's, that, that's really a great pity. I'm, I'm always uh, struck by uh, Benedict Sixteenth uh, having been born on Holy Saturday. Uh, I think it was in 1927, and he was baptized that very same day and, and he describes how the church was darkened all that week to commemorate uh, the blackness of the events of the Paschal mystery. But the moment the first shaft of Easter light shines through, uh, they would open the doors and the windows and, and illumine the interior with this sudden blaze of Easter light. It, it, it seems to me that you can only appreciate that radiant Easter light uh, after uh, you have plunged with Jesus into the darkness of, uh, of his descent into Sheol, 
into the place where there is no light, no warmth, no love. And there he goes to plant the flag of his father's uh, love, his father's victory. But at what cost? What price? Well, Dr. Martin, too, I had um, a spiritual director once tell me when trying to center a bit on Holy Saturday, he said it's very difficult for a lot of us because we know the end of the story. Uh, you know, the, the apostles living at the time and the followers of Jesus, well, he mentioned it to him several times how it was going to end. No one seemed to really connect the dots. But he said, you know, that you really have to immerse yourself in what it was like to be one of the apostles or one of the followers of Jesus and make that your paradigm and not jump ahead to the end of this story. That's right. You know, there's that scene in the Mel Gibson movie, The Passion, where Jesus uh, once again falls to the ground and his mother rushes to his side and he says to her, Mother, see how I make all, make all things new. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And yes. I mean, who? what newness? Uh, he's broken, humiliated, He's about to be slowly tortured to death, and then he dies. I mean, the sadness of that moment, the bleakness and desolation, must have emptied out all the, the prospects that these apostles and his mother had. They were plunged in gloom. This was the worst possible day, a disaster unmitigated. And yet, and yet, within... Two days, uh, he has conquered death. He's back. He overcomes all of that sadness and gloom. Yet today, the, the gospel reading is about the road to Emmaus. How clueless these people are. They're walking with Christ, and they still don't get it. And then suddenly he shows himself in the breaking of the bread. But it cost him everything uh, to procure that bread. And that's what we need to uh, reawaken, recover a, a sense of, of, of that mystery. I think that's why the suffering of love, uh, Christ's descent into the hell of human hopelessness, is such an important work because I think it helps to give us hope, not only when we look at larger events, even in our world today, like a genocide occurring in African nations or a war that our our sons and daughters are fighting in. But it's also for those moments that in our own life, in a very personal way, we suffer and we wonder, why would God allow this? I think you help us to refocus that you can't always wait until, you know, that moment when that suffering will be relieved. Part of it is you have to live through it. Yeah. Hope is, is one of those virtues, I think, that seems to be in very short supply. Yeah. in this postmodern age. Yeah. And, and yet it's the one virtue without which we wither and die. And it's not a kind of virtue that, that you can document or prove, because the outcome of it doesn't really depend on us. It depends on God. We have to wait, and wait with hope, with expectancy, that he won't disappoint us. He will come. He will fulfill these deepest, these deepest uh, desires of the human heart. We all want truth and justice and beauty and happiness and joy. And that's why in the midst of their apparent absence, we subsist on hope. I think that's so important because, I mean, we have to remember that we have the cross and we have the resurrection, but in that period in between, we still have Christ. He's still with us. Yes, he is, uh, and a kind of silent accompanying 
what a secular culture that is fearful of that message is trying to tell you when they say he does not exist or that he was just a mere human who was a nice guy like Plato and he he died or they try to take away that divine intervention on our behalf because that message is one that they're afraid of. Doing that they leave us orphans, bereft, uh, impoverished and I'd sooner slit my throat than go into that valley alone. I need that companionship. And, and the fact that it's both God and man simultaneously, that makes, it, that makes all the difference. Because, because it, it's a, a man like me, I can identify with him. He identifies with me, a shared sorrow, a shared uh, emptiness. But because Jesus is God, then his presence becomes efficacious, redemptive, powerful. Only God can save us now. I just have to say, for everyone out there listening, The Suffering of Love is yet another beautiful book by Regis Martin. And don't be concerned that it may seem like a heavy subject. It isn't. It's it's a wonderful walk through a perspective we all need to have. Enlightenment. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, Dr. Martin, we want to thank you so much for being with us and uh, for authoring this wonderful book. It's called Suffering of Love, Christ's Descent into the Hell of Human Hopelessness. Hopelessness. There we go. It's a tough word to get out sometimes. Have hope. You can do it. (laughs) (laughs) I'll have faith. Dr. Martin, again, thank you so much. We appreciate it. Thank you. My my pleasure. Any final thoughts? Bless you. No, just buy the book uh, (laughs) so that I can feed my kids. Okay. That's a good final thought. Write more books. (laughs) Yes, very good. Thank you very much. You're very welcome.